0: You guys have a lot to say today. How we doing? Let's try that again. How are we doing today? I mean you talked louder to each other than in response to my questions. So hey, uh, a couple quick things um, before we get started. And I, and I don't mean quick meaning. Let's rush through them. I just want to uh, say first of all, um, this Friday was Veterans Day. And so uh, we, as a church, just want to take a moment and acknowledge our veterans. If you're a veteran of our armed forces, would you please stand so that we can just say thank you to you? So, What we'd like to do is, if you wouldn't mind, veterans, at the end of the service when I go back to greet everyone, if you'd come back with us and just line up, and we'd like to shake your hands and say thank you personally. So thank you for your service to our country. That's a a great blessing to us. Um, And then I I also want to mention, so we sent out a prayer request earlier this week about Ray Stickler, and Ray's here this morning. And you're either thinking, wow, it's a miracle, or, or we just want to give you a quick update. He was preparing for surgery, and the doctor said, hey, we need to wait a couple more days. So Ray will be going in for open-heart surgery tomorrow morning. And so, Ray, we want to pray for you right now as a church family. I appreciate it all, I can't wait to go. I bet. I bet. Yeah, he, he has a long list of things he wants to do. So, well, let's pray. God, we thank You for who You are and for the love that You have for us. We thank You, Father, that it is well with our souls because Christ has won the victory. God, You have done it all. You are so good and faithful in all of Your ways. The way that You love us and secure us in that love, what a great blessing it is for us to come here today and to worship You. Father, we pray for our brother Ray and uh, just ask that you would give him a peace about what will take place tomorrow, be with the surgeons and everyone involved in his care. Father, we commit him to you for a full recovery. Father, we thank you for our veterans and we're grateful for men and women that have answered the call to serve. And and Father, we're grateful that uh, we live in a country where uh, we can... Uh, express our thanks to you freely. And we're grateful, Father, for the men and women that have answered the call to to enter uh, harm's way and also to stand on the front lines to defend um, our freedoms. And we pray your blessing upon them and their families. And God, we're grateful uh, for their sacrifices. Father, we pray in these moments we have together that your spirit would open our hearts to your word. That you would teach us. Father, that you would speak into our lives and help us to be more like your son. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for paying for our sins. Thank you for loving us with a, a love that is completely overwhelming for us to understand. We pray that we would follow you and love you and serve you with all that we are. We give you the praise, the highest praise, in your holy name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Jude. Uh, We've been in this book for the last few weeks. And um, the last couple weeks as I've been teaching in the book of Jude, you know, it's one of those things where... Jude's main message is, as we read about in verse 3, to contend for the faith. And the reason why Jude was saying that we have to contend for the faith is that there was trouble that was visited in the early church because of the false teachers that have crept their way in. And Jude is writing a letter of warning. He's, he's not saying, as Peter said in 2 Peter, they're coming. Jude is now writing and saying they're here. And so we have to be aware. We have to be careful Um, Because if we get swept away in their false teaching, it'll cause damage to our walk with the Lord. And it'll also cause the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ and its effectiveness to be diminished. And so Jude is saying, contend, fight earnestly for the faith. And so for the last few weeks, we've been painting a picture as Jude has been teaching us about the the terrible characteristics of false teachers, the errors that they, they teach, and, and also really who they are in their heart. And I, I love what Jude says as he's painting this picture because he's not so much talking only about the content. He, he draws us in and he says, now I want you to see who they are. I want you to watch their character. I want you to get a sense of how they carry themselves. And so we've been looking at character qualities. Now, you might think at, at this point, when is it going to end with his description about the false teachers? I mean, this is now the third or fourth Sunday we've looked at who these false teachers are, what they're guilty of, and, and why it's so damaging to listen to their teaching. I mean, I'm sure you, you, you agree they're bad, right? They're real bad. Like, we get it. Okay, Jude, get to the point. But I'd like to say a few things about the repetition that Jude gives us in this letter. First, Jude is a good teacher. He's a good teacher because he provides such clear examples for us. He takes us back into the Old Testament in different passages. We looked at three general um, passages that explain their downfall, and then we looked at three specific examples of their downfall. Second, We learn better with repetition. The constant reminder should not lull us into complacency, but remind us of the serious warnings of the false teachers and devout that devour a church and cause some believers to be discouraged or even doubt their faith. I've shared this before, I believe, but I I still vividly remember, and Angela might remember this too. Uh, our first year in Bible college, we went to school in Lower Bucks County, uh, just touching the Philadelphia County. Um, every Friday night for a while, we went to South Street in Philadelphia. You remember that? Have you ever been to South Street in Philly? It, it's like the the tourist trap of Philly. I mean, it, it has like shops and all sorts of things that, that are along this uh, street um, that's called South Street. And I remember one time, we were in on south street and there was like the a street evangelist that was there. They were they, they had like a corner set up and they were talking about the Lord and talking about the scriptures and all those things. And, and here, I was a fairly young believer. I'd gotten saved about a year, year and a half before that. And we're walking down the road and this guy pulls me aside and we're chatting. And before you know it, we end up around the corner in his little storefront area. And I'm thinking, okay, so, you know, he's talking to me about the Lord and what it means to have a relationship with the Lord. And I'm thinking, well, I, I have that. And um, you know, I'm training for ministry and I'm going to Bible college and all those things. But some of the things he was saying, he was saying it in such a way that because I didn't agree with him completely, it caused me to doubt. Do I really believe like I should be believing? And I was hearing some of these things and I was like, oh my gosh, am I really saved? And, and so I, Left there, and and you know that thought was kind of ringing in my brain, and I went back to school and lived on campus. And we had resident assistants that were older uh, students that would help, you know, watch over the younger students, the freshmen and the sophomores. And I remember talking to my resident assistant there that lived across the hall about my experience, and he was just like, "Oh no, no! Like what he's saying to you is is not what the scriptures are teaching." It was more of like a works based kind of thing that you had to do a certain thing to be confirmed in your salvation. And and that is not the salvation that God so freely gives us. It's a free gift based on faith. But it, it just made me think about those, those things that people say that cause you to wonder. And if you don't have uh, people that can encourage you in the truth of the Scriptures and, and you're not able to discern what the Word of God is saying about certain things, false teaching can cause you to doubt the very precious salvation that Jesus has so get freely given you, and that's why when we look at Jude and we look at these reminders and we we hear again and again and again the dangers, I, I'm just praying that that God through His Holy Spirit in your life will just cause those alarms to go off in your life, and and I know you're saying, well, listen. I come to church here and I'm committed here and I sit under the ministry of the word here and it would seem like and you know no other way am I being influenced but I would say that we live in an age today where we are more influenced about the possibility of false teaching than in any other time. I mean if you have a smartphone, if you listen to the radio, if you like if you just have other inputs in your life There's all these avenues that can come in that can cause you to wonder, is what I'm hearing true? I mean, this isn't going to be a railing judgment kind of thing. This is just a cautionary statement kind of thing. But we listen to, we have Sirius XM radio, and the Christian radio station is Spirit, uh, the Spirit Channel, I think. And they'll do these little, like, 30-second plugs on spiritual things to connect between one song and the next. And I'll often listen to those songs and think, I don't think that's true. You know, it's just these pithy saying kind of things. It's just, you know, what you can cross-stitch and hang over your couch kind of sayings that aren't always true. They sound okay, but they're not really true. And it's just that constant low noise of things that sometimes we're like, boy, I wonder if that's true. And what Jude is saying is we need to be careful. <clears throat> we need to be aware. We need to dig in and contend earnestly for the faith because if we're not, we're not only going to harm ourselves, but we're really harming the influence of the gospel, the generations around us, the next generation to come. And so with repetition, he calls us to understand the the uh, concern and the great importance of making sure we know what the truth is about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I was studying this week, it's been clear to see this discerning picture that Jude paints. And by the end of our time together today, I hope you have that clear understanding of deceit and the way that uh, deceitful teaching can impact and influence and what it can do in a person's life. Jude's going to paint five more pictures for us. It's like, this guy is so full of illustrations. He, he's constantly drawing our attention to the bigger picture of how these people are worming their way in, creeping in, and devouring the community of faith. And as we look at the world we live in, Jude grabs on some of those pictures, and he's going to say, okay, this is what they're like when they're doing what they do, that isn't for the Lord, but is for their own selfish ambition. And while I see that picture in my mind, I want to remind us this morning that God paints another clear picture for us. And it's the picture of who a true teacher is. So in Jude, we've been seeing the, the picture of the false teacher and what they're all about. And we saw this in verse 4, that they were ungodly persons who turned the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. And now, as Jude has been pointing us back to those characteristics, we can get this picture. It's like, okay, I get it. This is what they do, and this is how they're doing it. But I love that there's a contrast in the scripture where God doesn't just say to us, avoid this, but he says, this is who you should be following. This is who a teacher should be. Now, it's found all throughout the New Testament, but uh, there's one specific uh, book in the New Testament that my mind instantly went to when I was thinking about this contrast between a false teacher and a true teacher. And it's the letter that Paul writes to his brother, his spiritual son, Timothy. Second um, Timothy is... The last letter that Paul would write before he dies. This is kind of like his swan song. This is, he, he knows the end is near. In fact, at the end of Second Timothy, he tells Timothy just that. He's like, hey, bring me my important things because I know my time is running out. I've, I've run my race. And he, he writes this letter to Timothy, who's a pastor. He had pastored the church in Ephesus. And he was writing this letter to encourage Timothy in his calling. Now, he wrote three pastoral letters. He wrote two to Timothy, and he wrote one to Titus. But in this last letter of 2 Timothy, Paul is writing his heart for this man in ministry. And he, throughout this letter, commands Timothy to be faithful to the ministry that God has given him. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So he, he tells Timothy to guard it, the sound words of the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it reminds me of what Jude tells us to contend earnestly and to fight for the faith. Because we need to protect it. We need to be on guard. He says in 2 Timothy 2.1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace. Not be strong in yourself. Not, you know, pursue the, the next greatest thing to do to attract people be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ. Church, the last song that we sang this morning before I came up was uh, a newer rendition of It Is Well. And when you think about the words of that song of of why it is well in our souls, it's not because we're strong in the Lord. It's, in fact, the awareness and understanding that outside of Christ, we're not strong, but because of Him and His victory. We're in the safest place that we could ever be. And it can certainly be well in our souls. I don't know if Brian picked that song this week because it's, it was election day earlier this week. And, you know, we can have all sorts of thoughts and feelings about how things went, whether good or bad or oh my word. Church, it is well with our souls because God is on the throne. Paul told Timothy later in 2 Timothy 2, Remind them of these things, the things of sound doctrine, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. If you're a young person and you've been a part of our Awana ministry, this is the Iwana verse. Approved workmen that are not ashamed. This challenge and reminder that for Timothy as he pastored the, the, the flock of God, that he finds his sufficiency in his ministry not based on how charismatic he is. And I don't mean that in a charismatic gift kind of way, but how you know, his personality would overflow and be effective in other people's lives. Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy... Teach them the word of truth. Handle the word of truth. Don't worry about anything else. And then to wrap up in 2 Timothy 4, in this final, I mean, this is the final words that Paul will pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells Timothy this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths." And that very much sounds like what Jude is saying, right? These false teachers that have crept in and it's all about them. And, yet, and we often wonder as they're preaching a message that is all about them, all about their status, all about their name, all about their kingdom. My question is, why would we go and, and flock to something like that? And Paul says, listen, in that time, their ears are going to want to itch. People want to hear something good. And what they're saying, even though it is wrong, the heart that is not sanctified through the power of the Holy Spirit will want to hear the things that come from our own desires and flesh. And what does Paul tell Timothy to do? Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Like you put all this together, and, and what is the, the picture that Paul paints of a teacher that is sound? It's this. They teach the Word of God, and that's it. Like the, there's no dog and pony show. There's no extra stuff. It's the Word of God, because it's the Word of God that gives us life. It's the Word of God because it is God's living Word to us that transforms the heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God that becomes a mirror that we stare at and it reflects to us where we stand accurately before the holiness of God. Church, we don't need anything else. We have God's Word, and it is enough for us. These exhortations comfort me. They comfort me. Because in ministry, I don't need to be challenged to be like, oh gosh, do I need to do something new? What's the next thing that will attract people to the gospel? The, the problem with an attractional model of the gospel is you better be a really good idea guy because you're going to run out of ideas. What's the next thing? And the problem is, that attractional model of what the gospel is and who Jesus is, it's surface level. It gets people to lean into a point, but then they just sit there wondering, okay, what's the next thing? Who's going to be the next thing? What's the next truth? And I hear things like this and what Paul says, and I'm just like, I'm so glad that Paul kept it simple. Preach the Word. The Word and the truths that are found in it give life to those who believe, to those who listen, to those who apply. And so as we wrap up our discussion on who the false teachers are and what they are guilty of uh, peddling, what they are guilty of teaching, I pray we see the kindness of God in Scripture as He has preserved His Word that becomes the sole basis of of our life and faith with Him. And so let's look at Jude. We're going to look at verses 12-16. through Let me read these verses for you. This is what Jude writes. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So this is the final picture that he paints. Now at this point in Jude's exhortation about the false teachers, what he's getting to and what the, the point that we're beginning to see is that his exegesis is done. He's, he has laid the foundation. He has searched the word of God. He has brought out the principles and laid the foundation of who they are. And as he opens God's word from these three separate texts that we've seen all throughout these examples, we see one great truth. God will exact judgment on any pastor or teacher who loves freedom or money or sex or power more than a fidelity for God's word. God will bring judgment. God will preserve his name. He will protect the gospel. And God will not trifle with anyone that infringes upon that. And so incensed is Jude with the reality in his own day that there were false teachers that have crept in that before he could even ask us to do something and that's going to come next week right there there is an application of something that we need to do before he gets there he has to pause and again remind us that God's judgment is final now, what I want to do is just pick up on a last phrase in verse 11. Last for, la, verse 11 is where we ended last week. We looked at the three examples of Cain and Balaam and Korah. And when we looked at Korah, we looked at the, how Korah and his sons and about 120 people or 250 people, I think it was around there, they were swallowed up in the ground by God as a, a, a base of judgment for their rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And this is what Jude writes about Korah's rebellion. He says, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. The false teachers have perished like Korah in the rebellion. They have perished. Now, the false teachers are still alive, the ones that he's writing about. But Jude says they've already perished. Now, the, the word perish that he uses there is in a tense in the Greek language. It's the aorist tense, and I don't know if you know, that makes a big deal to you, but what it means is this tense that he uses about the word perished is an already completed action. It's, go, it's already happened. It's going to happen in the future for more false teachers because it's already occurred. God has already set false teachers aside for judgment. Judgment has already fallen upon them. These guys who are eating and drinking with you, and this is what he talks about in verse 12 that we'll look at for in a second, they're already dead. They're goners. They may be breathing and their eyes may be open, but they've already perished. Now, there's a part of me that I hear that and, and just there's a somberness about that, right? Because these are lives. These are people. And their eternity due to their pursuit of their own fleshly desires is already marked out for condemnation, for judgment. And that that. Sorrow's my heart. But we need to realize that the purity of the gospel is such a big deal to God that he will, at all costs, guard it. And so Jude gives us five final illustrations. He draws our attention out of the Old Testament to the world we live in. And he paints pictures of things that we can see or maybe we've seen already. And this is what he says in verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Now, there's a couple things we want to look at just for a second here. The first thing is he mentions a love feast. Now, what is that? Well, the love feast in the first century church was the meal that was celebrated by the early church before they would partake in the Lord's table. Communion. The early church would gather, they would have a feast and celebrate in love and fellowship. And then at the end of that love feast, they would focus in on the the community of reflecting upon the cross of Jesus Christ. And they would partake of the bread and the cup and celebrate the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would proclaim what Jesus had done. And Jude said that these false teachers were sitting next to you at the feast, dining. It reminds me of Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians that the reason why some people die after taking the Lord's table is they took it in an unworthy manner. They had not appraised themselves correctly at the foot of the cross and cried out for forgiveness for their sins. And Jude equates them as hidden reefs. Now, what is a hidden reef? Now, it would be if you were near the shoreline, right? And if you were standing on the shore itself, you would see, oh man, this is a beautiful place. And and boats would be out at sea and they would be coming in and they'd be like, okay, we can stop there because that would be a good place to dock. But as you got closer to the shoreline, a hidden reef would be something that would just be under the surface of the water. And it would likely be like um, sunken rocks that would cause the boats to shipwreck and tear the bottom out of them. Jude says these men, these false teachers that have crept in, that are teaching a message that is more about them than about Jesus himself, are like sunken reefs. They draw us in, and they shipwreck our faith. And that's a very real concern in the New Testament to have a shipwrecked faith. Paul talks about that, I believe, in 1 Timothy when he talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander who shipwrecked their faith. A shipwreck of faith of once believing and now due to fleshly concerns and passions and pursuits have abandoned the Lord altogether. And what is dangerous about this is that they are celebrating with us the one meal that should set us off as true believers in Jesus. The love feast that culminates with the Lord's table. Jude says, be aware. He also says that they are like uh, clouds. Clouds without any water. Clouds without any water attract attention, but there's no substance. Do you ever see like on a cloudy day, the clouds roll and think, okay, it's going to rain today, and then they just zip right on by? It's like, oh, well. There goes that. Clouds without rain, and you might think if you're, you know, examining like, hey, my science teacher said you can't have clouds without moisture. That's not the point. We're talking about clouds that actually do something and dropping rain to the ground. But these kinds of clouds give us the promise of refreshment, but they have no substance. In Palestine, summer clouds often add to the humidity and consequently make the intense heat even more unbearable. It makes it warmer because it kind of traps in the heat and it continues to radiate. Jude goes on and he says that false teachers are like autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Now, farmers often dig trees that bear no fruit out of the ground. If they're not good for anything, you've got to get rid of them. The false teachers bore no spiritual fruit. They were incapable of bearing spiritual fruit. And Jude says they are doubly dead. Now, when you look at this theme of an uprooted tree throughout the Old Testament, an uprooted tree throughout the Old Testament, like in Psalm 52, Proverbs 2, Jeremiah 1, were all symbols of divine judgment, of trees being rooted out of the ground. Now, autumn is literally late autumn in the the Greek text. And what Jude is showing us is that he believes his readers are living in the last days. It's late autumn, things are coming to a close. Now, you need to see this. We're living in the last days. Some of you are like, yeah, I got you. Yeah. Church, we're living in the last days. And what I mean by that is not some kind of crazy, let's you know, look at all the n- news headlines kind of thing, living in the last days. From the moment that Jesus returned back to heaven, the apostles very clearly understood that they were living in the last days. The last days have been going on for 2,000 years at least. And to which I say, how much longer, Lord? And yet one day is like 1,000 years and 1,000 years a day. But we're living in the moment that the next thing that is supposed to happen in God's prophetic timeline is the return of Jesus. That's like the next thing and it can happen, as Paul said, and as Jesus even taught his disciples, like a thief in the night, coming out of nowhere. Jude borrows on the imagery of the late autumn trees, right? We're not con- at complete late autumn, but if you were here a few weeks ago and drove up the driveway, you saw the three trees at the edge of the, the, the parking lot, and you thought, man, it, wasn't that beautiful? It was like the reddest red. And it lasted a week. And now you look out there and they're like a bunch of sticks hanging there. Right? We're at late autumn. And false teachers are like trees that bear no fruit being plucked out of the ground reserved for judgment. Jude adds, they are wild waves of the sea in verse 13. Waves cast up filth and debris onto the shore with their waves and foam. Similarly, similarly, the false teachers spread evidence of their uncontrolled immorality, their impurity wherever they want. Like the foam that, that comes to the, the sand or the seashore and, and just like, do you ever see like waves crash and the foam is just kind of there and you're like, I don't want to walk through that. It's kind of their influence, spreading it out in an uncontrolled way. The waves are going to hit what they're going to hit. Jude adds in verse 13, they are like wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Some stars move about in the sky differently from other stars. We now call them planets. Like when Jude wrote this, they'd look up in the sky and say, well, that doesn't seem right. And it might have been Mars or Jupiter or one of the planets doing its own thing. They didn't quite understand what we now understand because of telescopes and charting those things. But what Judas saying is the false teachers are like stars that really don't have an orbit that they follow because they are out of harmony with the other luminaries. They go about their own way. They chart their own course. Very basically, they've abandoned an orthodox understanding, a regular understanding of what the Word of God teaches. And what does Jude say? Black darkness is reserved for them forever. Another somber warning. They're like waves in wandering stars. Listen, all teachers of the Scriptures who abandon the faith, who promote sensuality, who seek their own gain, who work to, their, to not a true authority of the Scriptures are like clouds that can't bring rain, trees that don't bear fruit, waves that are wild, and stars that are wandering. And so Jude is preaching to protect us from leaders who are nothing more than waterless wells and dry riverbeds. The stakes are high, and Jude warns. One commentator noted, it's as if Jude is saying, and it was already on the screen, so you might have already read it, Beloved, the church is filled with men and women who are speaking and preaching their way towards a black hole of judgment from which there will be no return up on your feet contend for the faith lest you follow them or worse yet become one of them that's why Jude is saying what he's saying to to the degree that he's saying it he's like we got to be careful church I pray you'll be careful you'll be discerning you'll search the scriptures to make sure that what you're hearing is true in verses 14 and 15, Jude does something that, like he said before, concerning Moses and his body, makes you scratch your head and think, okay, what are you talking about here, Jude? But he says in verses 14 and 15, it was also about these men that Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And you read that verse and you say, okay, I get it. But then when you start pulling back from what he is saying, you begin to see like we saw with Michael arguing with Satan about the body of Moses, that what Enoch said here isn't quoted in the Old Testament. It's not. All we know about Enoch in the Old Testament is he lived a long time ago before the flood. And he walked with God. But we don't know much about him. And we don't even know what he really said. But Jude here quotes words from Enoch. And what's interesting is what he quotes here is found in another apocryphal book another book of the scripture or that wasn't of the scriptures it was known at that time it was the book of first enoch and somehow through the inspiration of the holy spirit god led jude to quote these words that are found in this book And we know that the Holy Spirit sometimes did that. He did it with the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul goes to Mars Hill, which was kind of the marketplace of Athens. And he's debating with the Athenians. And the Athenians, who were Greeks, were all about worldly philosophies and believing all the things. And Paul stands in this court and he sees that they have a statue to an unknown god. And he draws on that to draw the point that you worship in ignorance and I'm telling you who that true unknown God is. And his name is the Lord. But in Acts 17.28, Paul quotes one of the pagan philosophers of the world at that time. And sometimes God will use other truths to drive home the point to support the truths of what we need to know. Now, a couple things that we want to see about Enoch here. Just some quick observations. First, Enoch is a biblical character, but his quotation is not a biblical reference. Jude is pulling from literature of his own day that will lend support to his argument. Second, Enoch clues us into the idea that these false teachers were circulating their own teachings, their own sermons... And and it seems, based on this quotation, that what they are circulating is that God is a God of love, not a God of wrath and judgment. Like God loves everyone. Do we hear things like that today? Like God is love, 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 love. But there's no message of sin, there's no message of the cross, there's no message of dying to self, there's no message of coming to Jesus and acknowledging that apart from him you are bankrupt, you are dead. In your sins and trespasses. Just come as you are. And stay as you are. And that's really the hitch. Right? Because the gospel call is a come as you are calling. But it's a never stay as you are calling. And so it's all this about God is love. You just figure it out. It'll be all right. God will just pat you on the back and it'll be okay. But when you see what Jude says, quoting from Enoch, what does he say? Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which which they have done in an ungodly way. If you underline in your Bible and and you see repetition, you begin to see that there's a pattern here. What does Jude quote or repeat in this quotation three times? Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. And, And we see that God used somehow through Enoch, who was a prophet, because these are his words that God inspired Jude to quote, that a long time ago, early pages of the book of Genesis, you see that God used Enoch to preach a message of future judgment that Enoch didn't understand, but we now know that when this day will come, it'll come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns with his holy ones. And we read about that in the book of Revelation. Why? Because God is judging sin. And so Jude wants us to know Not only do the ungodly exist, but the ungodly will be judged. And I think in a positive way, what Jude is doing in bringing Enoch to light in our lives is to give us a positive example, an example to follow. I think what he's saying is be like Enoch. Be someone that stands out in a corrupt and evil world. Be someone that walks with God in a world that is perverse. And then he wraps it all up in verse 16. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. False teachers will be known more for speaking arrogantly. Like those brash statements that you think, really? What authority do you have saying something like that? They flatter people, right? Paul said to Timothy, there's a day where people's ears want to be itched. Jude says they speak flattering things. Making people feel really good. But not so that they feel better. They do it for themselves. For their own advantage. It's all about them. Everything a false teacher does is all about them. Church, we need to be alert. We need to be aware of those who lift up their own agenda over the truth of God's Word. Those who call us to a life that is more about what we can get out of God, how we can be blessed, in contrast to the truth of God's Word that declares the will of God. We need to flee from their influence. We need to run to the safety and comfort of god's word, we need to run to Jesus, who is the living Word. I shared this this week, at least a part of this verse in our um, new members' class Thursday night, but John six verses 66 and six, through 69 this is how the disciples responded to Jesus. as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. What was the as a result? Well, some of the hard things he was saying. The more Jesus spoke about what it means to be a follower of the kingdom, the harder it got. The, the road got more narrow. The cost of discipleship grew greatly. He would say things and do things, and more and more people would say, Well, gee, he's not just giving me food and he's not just making me feel better when I'm sick physically. He's telling me hard things like I have to give up everything to follow him. I don't like that. So they withdrew. In verse 67, we read, So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Right? He's watching the crowds go. He's aware of it. He turns to his disciples, the men that he had called, and he says, Do you want to go with them? I mean, are, are you going to follow their lead? And in verse 68, Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go, Lord? We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Church, I, I pray that as you rest in the reality that God is the Holy One, that there is nowhere nowhere else we can go, that you will find security and comfort and the truth of his word, that you will run towards Jesus and flee all sorts of false teaching that is around us. And it is for the protection of your own faith that we do that. And we do it for the glory of God. Let's pray.